Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Hebrews chapter 11 is our text uh, this morning. I'm going to read verses 8 through 16. So if you have that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 11, starting with verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Uh, Our God, we look to you and your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and to direct the words of this preacher, that the truth of your word might be declared for our edification and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning we are concluding our Q&A sermon series. We've been doing this the last uh, four Sundays, and uh, as I've been doing, I just want to review where we've been. Uh, we started this series on January 20th, and we examined this question, how should a Christian relate to digital technology? So we considered uh, the um, influx of the use of cell phones and the internet and various uh, other parts of the digital explosion that's been happening. Um, So we looked at that January 20th. January 27th, the following Sunday, we considered this question, how does one live as a single person to the glory of God? If you're single, how do you live in obedience to God? How do you deal and wrestle with that? Uh, January 27th. Then last Sunday, we considered this question on Super Bowl Sunday, what does God think of sports? And uh, I did the best that I could to lay out a theology of sports for you. Now, each of these sermons is available at our website, uh, www.newlifepca.org. So if you're interested in hearing those, you can go there and hear the audio files of those messages. But today, <clears throat> we are uh, dealing with this question, uh, a question that uh, perhaps is significantly more complicated than Uh, the previous three. Does Israel, does the nation of Israel have a legitimate claim to the land? By the land, we're talking about uh, the land of Palestine. 
Um, a lot of you are probably generally familiar with this situation, although probably all of you are confused about it uh, because it's a very complicated situation. But I'm going to try to very, very briefly explain uh, what the dispute is. The dispute takes place between two groups of people, the Jews and the Palestinians. You know who the Jews are, the people of Israel. The Jews play a primary place in the story of the Bible. The Bible tells the story of the nation of Israel, a big portion of it is devoted to the Jews. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was a Jew, so the Jewish people are very central um, to the story of the Bible. The Palestinians, Palestinians are just Arabs who are living in Israel. And um, these two groups have been disputing for a long time over who has legitimate claim to the land. So uh, the land that we're talking about, if you look to the screen... Uh, this is kind of a zoom-out uh, map to show you where Israel is. It's, we're just talking about this little strip of land right here um, in the Middle East. And to kind of zoom in, we'll see some more detail about what the actual uh, nature of the dispute is. Um, I don't know how well you can read <clears throat> these uh, explanations, but uh, basically the lighter colored areas of Israel are the areas that are under the control of Israel. The green areas, uh, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank here, are areas that are under Palestinian authority. And um, I don't know if you can see this or not, but there's lots of little tiny little triangles if you see those kind of all throughout there in the West Bank, those triangles represent uh, Israeli settlements. These are settlements of Jews who have uh, found a place to live in the West Bank, which is Palestinian territory. And so a lot of the tension about this whole issue has to do with, with that in particular, at least today. A lot of the international community says that Jews have no right to have those settlements in the West Bank. Um, and, of course, the Palestinians agree with that, but the, uh, the nation of Israel says that, that they do. But a, a lot of these tensions began or were exacerbated, I should say, in 1948. That's when um, Israel declared their independence, uh, became a nation, and uh, Palestinians were living in the land at the time. And as a result of that, there were then a lot of Palestinian refugees, about 700,000 Palestinian refugees as a result of of that development in 1948. Um, so a very important date in, in this whole discussion. Since 1948, there have been more than 14,000 casualties uh, as a result of the, uh, the violence and the dispute and the tension that has existed here uh, in this land. And so to this day, Jews and Palestinians, these two groups of people, are still trying to figure out how to live together in this land. <clears throat> Another very important date was uh, the Six-Day War, which was in 1967. And at that time, Israel uh, took, they did a, a military takeover and took this area, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, as well as uh, the Golan Heights and the Sinai Peninsula. But uh, later on, I think it was in 1993, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank were given back to the Palestinians. So the Palestinians 
uh, should have control over those areas because of that uh, agreement. But as I explained, there's still dispute about who really should live in those places. So, you know, that's, that's a really, you know, Cliff Notes version uh, of the situation. But uh, a lot of tensions there, as you know, a lot of violence. And, you know, to try to make this personal... And just, you know, imagine what would happen or how you would feel if, and I'm not saying that this particular scenario has necessarily happened, but, you know, imagine tonight you're, you're eating dinner and then you get a knock on the door and you go to the door and you find outside your door six or seven soldiers standing there and out in your driveway is a truck and it's filled with people and the soldier says, pack your bags, let's go. And you're like, What? We talking about? Uh, we've got a new home for you, so pack your bags and get your family, and get in the truck. You argue a little bit. They reveal their guns, and you decide to cooperate. You get your bags, you get your family, you get in the truck, and, and they they take you to some place, a foreign country, take you down to Mexico, and drop you off in that land, and say, "This is your new homeland. This is where you live now." And you're expected then to to make your own home in this foreign place. <clears throat> I mean, that, that's, that's something where, I mean, just imagine how you would feel about that. Imagine how outraged you would be by that, and imagine how homesick you would be, how much your heart would long for a return to your homeland. Well, that's something of what these people are, are dealing with and, uh, and struggling with. Uh, they're, they're feeling that they have a right to this place because it's their home and they don't want to be Displaced. Well, th- this is very relevant actually for, for Christians because a lot of Christians, many believers, and particular, particularly evangelical Christians, have very strong feelings about what's taking place here um, because this is the promised land, the holy land, uh, according to some biblical prophetic understandings. And so many Christians conclude, they come up with conclusions, and they develop their positions on this particular political situation based on teachings in the Bible. So they look to the Scriptures, and they say, here's what the Bible teaches, therefore I should have a particular position on this issue. And some would go so far as to say that it is the duty of a Christian to support or to back Israel uh, in this dispute and to, in some cases, kind of uh, demonize the Palestinians. Well, we need to uh, consider this whole situation by looking at the Bible, but I, I also am hoping that the warning that we get from this is that we as Christians need to exercise great care in how we interpret the Bible and in how willing we are to take biblical teaching and apply it to political situations. Uh, in almost all cases, that turns out badly. <laughs> and so we, we, we need to be careful about that, and, and that's kind of what I hope is going to be the kind of overall warning, I guess, um, from this, this message. Uh, my goal here is not to try to come up with some political solution to how the Jews and Palestinians should get along uh, in this land. All I'm going to do is look at what I see to be the teaching of the Scriptures to attempt to answer this question. Does Israel today, the nation of Israel, do they have a right to that land? Biblically speaking, theologically speaking. 
and I've chosen Hebrews 11 to kind of get us started <clears throat> on that. Hebrews 11, a little bit of background on that. A lot of you know about Hebrews 11, famous passage in the New Testament because it uh, is uh, called the Hall of Faith. And here in Hebrews 11, the writer is giving uh, a number of different models from the Old Testament, godly people, starting in verse um, one, we see a definition of faith, and then starting in verse 4, we hear about Abel, and then we hear about Enoch, and then we hear about Noah, and these are all godly people who exercised faith, and by verse 8, we see that Abraham is introduced into this picture, uh, a man of faith from the Old Testament, and uh, all of these are given by the writer of the Hebrews to you and to me so that we can be encouraged in our faith. That's really the purpose of the writing of the book of Hebrews, to encourage discouraged Christians. And so everything that I'm going to say here about Hebrews 11 is really with that ultimate goal in mind, uh, that you would be encouraged and, and not give up in serving our God. Now, I'm going to be giving you a lot of Scripture here today, so uh, get ready. It's a lot of explanation, <clears throat> so uh, I hope you're awake and have had your coffee. Um, but let's get into this and, and see if we can answer this question. Does Israel have a claim to the land? So first of all, I want to think about the origin of the land promises. Wait, where, where does this idea of a promised land, where does it come from? And for many Christians, for many people, where they think it all begins is in Genesis 12. We heard that read by Landon a few moments ago, um, where God <clears throat> comes to Abraham and calls him out of the land of Ur. And God says, Abraham, I want you to leave, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. And that land turns out to be this land that goes by a number of names, the promised land, the land of Canaan, the holy land, and uh, the land that I was just uh, showing you on, on the map. And it's interesting when you consider um, <clears throat> where Israel was situated. If, if you notice, very strategically, it's right here as kind of a bridge among three different continents. You've got Africa here, you have uh, Asia here, and Europe up here. And so there, there is a reason why... Israel was placed, or, or why God sent his people to constitute themselves in that uh, particular place in the world, to have maximum effect in reaching the world uh, as a bridge among uh, these three continents. Well, in Hebrews 11, the writer refers to Genesis 12. This is what he's talking about in verse 8, Hebrews 11, verse 8. He's looking back to Genesis chapter 12, and he comments, and he says, by faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. I mean, what a tremendous act of faith. He has no idea where God is going to take him. He just wants to obey God. And so by faith, he steps out and follows the leading of God. I heard a story of a, of a guy who has a picture in his office. It's four pictures, and each of them is just a picture of a desert. They're all exactly the same pictures. Four separate pictures of desert. And someone asked him, why do you have those up there? And he said, because when Abraham was called to leave Ur, his city, no matter what direction he looked in, that's what he saw. North, south, east, or west, anywhere he looked, it was just open desert. And no really indication of which was the better way to go. He didn't know where he was going or where God 
was taking him. But we do see that eventually where he would be winding up or what was the intent in verse 9 is by faith he went to live in the land of promise. That's the promised land, the land of Canaan, the holy land. He was to go live there as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Isaac, Abraham's son. Jacob, Abraham's grandson. They also, heirs with him of the same promise. So this promise is given not just to Abraham, but to his descendants. And there's this promise that Abraham's descendants, they are going to inherit this land and live in the promised land. So th- this whole theme of land becomes dominant in the Old Testament as Abraham's descendants seek to follow God's leading and promise and command in this way. Uh, The statistic I saw didn't mention the book of Genesis, not sure why, but in the final four books of the Pentateuch, uh, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the land is mentioned more than 400 times uh, just in those four books. And, um, you know, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, um, that the pursuit of the land and the longing for the land is second only to Israel's longing for God himself in the story of the Old Testament. And that's, that's how dominant this theme is. Second only to the longing and desire for God is this longing and desire uh, for the land. And so, as many of you know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you get to the book of Joshua, it's talking about the conquest of the land, and then because of Israel's disobedience, there's, there are threats of uh, exile from the land, and of course that ex- ends up happening. Israel is exiled, but then there's promises for restoration to the land, and throughout the Old Testament, again, this becomes a dominant theme. So, for a lot of people, that's where it all begins, Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham, and his descendants of the promised land. But friends, here's something that's very important to note. That is not actually where the concept of land begins in the Bible. This whole idea of of God's people inhabiting a land does not begin in Genesis 12. If you see it as beginning in Genesis 12, you might be led to certain conclusions, but it actually goes back to the garden. The idea of God's people having a homeland began when God created Adam and Eve and put them in a garden, put them on a piece of land, told them to cultivate that land and live in that land and enjoy that land. That was God's original intent for his creatures to live in fellowship with him, in fellowship with each other, and in harmonious fellowship, in a sense, with creation, with the created order. That was God's original intent. That was paradise. And yet you know that Adam and Eve, they sinned. They rebelled against God. They ate of the fruit that God told them not to eat from. And one of their punishments was not just physical death, not just spiritual death, but expulsion from the land, expulsion from the garden. In other words, here's uh, Genesis chapter 3. Therefore the Lord God sent Adam out from the garden of Eden. This is after his sin, and as God is pronouncing his curse on Adam, sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove him out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Some think that that was there to guard Adam and Eve from coming back into the land. They they were dispersed 
exile. This is the first exile in the Bible. Adam and Eve being removed from the land. We see this again here in Genesis 4, talking to um, Cain. You will be, Cain, a fugitive (coughs) and wanderer on the earth. A big part of the gospel, friends, a big part of the gospel is, is not just forgiveness of our sins. I mean, that's a big part of it. It's not just being reconciled to God. That's a big part of it, too. And we are grateful for what Jesus has done for us to do that. But a big part of the gospel also is getting you back home. That, that's, that, that's what God is doing. He wants to get you back in the place that you belong. I mean, don't you identify with the feeling to some degree of displacement, of just not feeling like you belong, just feelings of being homesick? Or you think back of the place where you were from, your hometown, and you have all these memories, and, and you go back to your hometown, and it's just it's not the same anymore. I mean, I'm from Carmel. If anybody knows about what's been going on in Carmel, that town has just completely transformed and changed over the last 20 years or so. And I, I'm probably for the better. I'm not commenting on that. I'm just saying it's not the same. It's not the place that it was when I grew up there. And I, I remember right after college just having particularly feelings of displacement and homelessness because I felt I'm out of college. I ought to be kind of establishing myself. But I didn't really know where I was or what I wanted to do. And, of course, I, I didn't live at home at the time, but I wanted to be home. And I went home a lot. And... Just had a feeling like mom and dad were kind of saying, you know, you need to kind of, you know, cut off the apron strings a little bit. That was just hard for me. And I just remember thinking, I don't have a home. I don't know what to call home. Well, that's a big part of the gospel is God has has a home in mind for us. So Genesis 12 was actually not the beginning of these land promises. It goes back to the garden, and that paves the way for this glorious part of the gospel, getting us back home. But, but based on Genesis 12, because that's where a lot of people begin when they think about the land promises, many conclude that the church and that America and the United States have an obligation to support Israel in this conflict. And, and someone even goes so far as to say that as Israel fights against and seeks to displace the Palestinians, that basically what they're doing is what God called Israel to do back in the Old Testament in displacing the Canaanites from the land. And some Christians view the Palestinians as modern-day Canaanites. Now, I don't know how much they would really support you know, the, the, the killing and the violence involved, but, but that's where this thinking can end up leading to. Here's what President Bill Clinton said in 1994. If you abandon Israel, God will never forgive you. It is God's will that Israel, the biblical home of the people of Israel, continue forever and ever. It's a common view among a lot of Christians. John Hagee is a dispensational preacher, very, very strong advocate of uh, Israel's right to the land. That property... Palestine was given to Israel by a mandate from God himself, and he's referring to Genesis 12 there. The Palestinians have absolutely no claim to it. So it could be that some of you share this, this opinion, um, but let's, let's proceed to see what is the proper way to interpret the land promises. That, that's, I just talked about the origin, where this kind of all starts. Now, how do we interpret these land promises in the Old Testament? 
Because that's really at the root of what this whole issue is about. It's a matter of biblical interpretation. It's, it's how, how do you interpret specifically the Old Testament? That, that's another lesson I think we can learn from here. And here's a principle that I think is very important for us to understand. We must interpret the Old Testament the way the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. <laughs> One of the wonderful things about the Scriptures is that even in the Bible, we have examples and directions about how we should interpret the Bible. A theology of biblical interpretation can be found within the Scriptures themselves, and the way we interpret the Old Testament uh, is modeled for us in the way the New Testament interprets it. So, for example, Colossians chapter 2 <clears throat> says this, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those were Old Testament observances. He says, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These Old Testament observances were shadows, but now in the New Testament we see what the substance of those shadows was Jesus. And that is kind of a controlling principle for how we should view New Testament observances, that they're, they're shadows. I mean, have you ever stood in front of a, a light, you know, and you did, did this, you know, with your, with your hands, and you formed a shadow on the wall, and the shadow looks like a dove or like a bird, and, and actually looks remarkably like a, a, a dove. I mean, it, the, the similarities are, are very strong, but you know, that's the shadow on the wall, but what is the substance of that shadow? Actually, it's not a bird, is it? it it's, it's hands. So when you look at a shadow, it doesn't always lend itself to being clear about what actually the substance of the shadow is. And that's the same with the Old Testament. A lot of shadows there, but we need to look to the New Testament to see what those shadows pointed to. Let me give you a, a few examples. Think about the animal sacrifices. This is probably one of the most common, commonly understood examples of this. Old Testament law commanded that the Israelites offer up a variety of different kinds of sacrifices, animal sacrifices, shedding of blood for the atonement for their sins. It was very common, huge part of the Old Testament devoted to that. But let's think about that in terms of shadow and substance. If the matters of the Old Testament are shadow, that means the animal sacrifices were shadow. What is the substance of that? Hebrews 10. The writer to the Hebrews says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The, the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were insufficient to reconcile a person to God. But, jumping down to verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He finished it. He offered the last sacrifice for sins. There's no need for any more sacrifices, no need for any more animal sacrifices. They were the shadow, the substance has come in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10 tells us how to interpret Animal sacrifices from the Old Testament. Another image, this idea of the, the uh, manna from heaven or bread from heaven. 
you know probably what happened as Israel was in the, old, uh, in the wilderness and they were hungry and miraculously God provides manna from heaven for them to eat. Very significant event in the history of Israel. But that was a shadow. It was a shadow of something later to come. And what was that? Well, here's what Jesus says in John 6. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. It didn't keep them alive. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The manna from heaven, the bread from heaven, the Old Testament, pointed forward to the substance, which is Jesus himself. And Jesus is the one who satisfies the longing of our souls as manna satisfied the physical desire of his people in the Old Testament. How about this notion of the children of Abraham? Common, again, kind of Old Testament image, the children of Abraham. Who, Who are the children of Abraham? Are you a child of Abraham today? You know, often we think of that as being uh, the Jews. And we even saw in our passage here, I think it was in verse 8, he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive his inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Um, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Um, where does it say the many descendants? Yeah, verse 12. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. Abraham's descendants. So, In Genesis 12, that promise is made to Israel, and the promise is that there's going to be a multitude of descendants of Israelites that are more numerous than the sand on the seashore. That's the promise in the Old Testament, but but that's, that's a shadow of something coming later, a substance coming later that we see in Galatians 3 on your screen there at the bottom. Paul says, if you are Christ's, if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you're a Christian, you're a child of Abraham, the New Testament tells us. One more example, <clears throat> this idea of, uh, of the people of God, uh, a holy nation, which we see frequently, of course, in the Old Testament. Israel has always been understood to be the people of God, and you see this here in Exodus 19 as an example. Next, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. God says, Now therefore, speaking to Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He's speaking to uh, Moses here. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Israel was a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. But who, who, who is the proper recipient of that designation today? This is a shadow. What is the substance? We look to the New Testament and we see what Peter says. Peter's talking to the church of Jesus Christ and he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter's taking language from Exodus 19 and applying it to the church of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is the church is the people of God today. You are a holy nation, New Life Presbyterian Church, along with the universal church of God. You are God's treasured possession, believer in Jesus Christ. 
That designation, friends, no longer belongs to the nation of Israel. They are not the people of God. Matthew 21, pretty striking verse here. Jesus says, he's speaking to elders and chief priests. He says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. This is God's judgment on the Jews for rejecting the Messiah. So how do we apply this to to the land? How do we apply this to the land? Let's go back to Hebrews 11. Go back to Hebrews 11. We see in verse 11, by faith, Sarah, she received power to conceive, as God promised, that she was going to give birth to a child. It was even when she was past the age. She was old, but she considered him faithful, who had promised. She believed the promise. Therefore, from one man, Abraham now, uh, and him as good as dead, an elderly man, uh, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand and the seashore. Uh, But as this continued, look what it says in verse 13. The promises of the land were given to Abraham and his descendants, but according to verse 13, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised. In other words, they didn't get the land. They didn't get full possession of the land, according to the writer of Hebrews. And they acknowledged as a result of that that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They didn't have a home. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. They're looking for a home. But, but they didn't find it in the promised land because they didn't get it. And in fact, they didn't find their homeland in the place from which they came either. Verse 15, if they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. They could have gone back if they wanted to. Abraham could have gone back to Ur. But he didn't do that. That's not the homeland that he was looking for. He didn't make it. He didn't get full possession of the land of Canaan, the promised land, the holy land. That was denied to him as well. So what was he looking for? What was he hoping for? Verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. The land promises in the Old Testament are shadows. This passage is pointing to the substance. So, what is the substance? What what is the final meaning? It's my last point. The meaning of the land promises. The land promises in the Old Testament are shadows. The substance is the new heavens and the new earth that are going to begin when Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, returns again to reign over the cosmos. That's the substance of the land promises. Friends, there, are, there, there is nothing in the New Testament that says anything about Israel being reconstituted, regathered in the land of Palestine. There's nothing in the New Testament about that. What the New Testament does in interpreting the Old Testament is it takes those land promises and expands them and enlarges them to something greater and bigger and beyond anybody's imagination. Look what Peter says. According to his promise, according to the promises that God has made to his people, what are we waiting for? A reconstitution of Israel in the land of Palestine? No, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness 
dwells. That's the substance of the land promises. That's what we're looking for now. That's what we're hoping for. That's the hope of the Christian. Look how this shows up in in other places. Look at Romans 4. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, it says. That's the New Testament take on the land promise. It doesn't say he'd be heir of the land. He's going to be heir of the world. And that did not come through law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham, according to the New Testament, is the heir of the world. Here's another example. Psalm 37 says this, The meek shall inherit the land, the righteous shall inherit the land, and dwell upon it forever. But look what Jesus does. He takes that and he enlarges it, expands it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's the fulfillment of the land promises. Here's how guy named Old Palmer Robinson says this, the return to paradise in the framework of the new covenant does not involve merely a return to the shadowy forms of the old covenant. It means the rejuvenation of the entire earth by this renewal of the entire creation, the old covenant's promise of land, finds its new covenant realization. I guess sums it up very, very well. Just, just one more passage of Scripture to reflect on that supports this, Romans 8, uh, 20 and 21. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There is a future for the creation because Jesus has died and is resurrected not just to forgive sins but to renew all things the earth included. So, does Israel have a legitimate claim to the land? Just four quick concluding points. My conclusion is this. There is no biblical reason to believe that Israel has a right to the land of Palestine. Now, politically, that's a different discussion. You might have political opinions about that. Given everything that's been happening with the Oslo Accords and and the disputes about the settlements, I'm not getting into that. Biblically, theologically, there's no reason based on the Bible to believe that Israel has a right to the land of Palestine. And as Christians, you should not feel that you are theologically obligated to support Israel. You're free to do that if you want for political reasons, but you're not in sin if you don't. You're not in rebellion against God for not supporting the nation of Israel in its current crisis. Secondly, this is not an excuse for anti-Semitism. There's nothing anti-Semitic. There's nothing anti-Jewish about what I'm saying here. In fact, we as Christians should have reverence and admiration and gratefulness in our hearts to the nation of Israel for what God has done through it. Paul says in Romans 9, 4, the Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Salvation comes from the Jews. Our Savior has come from the nation of Israel. And so we are grateful to God for that. But friends, there is no hope for a Jew in being a Jew. A Jewish person has no hope that he or she is going to be made right before God or accepted by God on the basis of his or her ethnic descent. There's no hope in that. And 
If I could quote Robertson one more time, I think this is a good warning how sad it would be if evangelical Christians who profess to love the Jewish people should become a primary tool in misdirecting their faith by giving them some kind of a hope that the kingdom will be restored to them when they get back to the land. No, here's how they will be engrafted back into the kingdom by bowing their knee to Jesus, receiving him as Savior, and living for him. That's, that's their hope. Thirdly, Christians should pray and work for justice and peace among Jews and Palestinians. And I'm not saying we ignore this issue. We should be concerned about it. We should pray about it. And imagine what, what, a, what a phenomenal, just, um, what, what a powerful testimony it would be to the rest of the world if Jews and Palestinians could be reconciled in the gospel. Can you imagine what a testimony that would be for the glory of God through Jesus Christ if that could happen? We should pray for that. And then lastly, salvation is not found in ethnic descent, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. I think one of the warnings here is just this. Be very, very careful about leaning on, trusting in, looking to anything other than Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection for your right standing before God. If you're a Jew, it's, it's not good enough. If you're American, that, that's not good enough. Uh, you're a Presbyterian, that, that's not good enough. You're, you're a part of the church, you've been baptized, you've been a good person, it, it's not good enough. There's only one thing that saves. It's not ethnic descent. It's not some kind of tradition or history in, in your past. It's personal faith in what Jesus has done. And so that's, that's my call to you. Trust Jesus look to him, and also look for the day when Jesus will come again and every eye will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and he will reign over the entire cosmos forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, help us as we seek seek to think through this situation in in a careful and balanced way. And Father, I do pray that all of our convictions and all of our positions and all of our opinions, Lord, as best as we can, would be based on the teaching of your word. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.